so, Sharice, okay. we made it to 30. Episode oh 30, goodness. last one of the year. You know, it's funny because we made special mention of episode 10. We were like, we made it to 10. And then 20 just kind of slipped us by. Well, 30 we really is kind of whatever, too. It's just that it's the last one of the year. That's, I think that's pretty special that we're at the end of the year, not that we're at 30. Oh, man. Should we start the show by going over our personal highlights of 2017? Of the entire year. I thought you meant of this show. Okay, fine, this show. I thought you meant highlights of this show. Let's narrow it down. I think we've done this before, but for people that haven't tuned in or haven't haven't followed us along from episode one, how would you describe the first few episodes versus what it is now? We were definitely still figuring things out. I think figuring out just... Give an example. Our dynamic, yeah. but then also the format of the show. Well, like we we weren't actually very good at explaining what we were talking about. We, so we would kind of jump into really. things. We're slightly better now, but the first five episodes, I would say, we like really just jumped into our thoughts on topics instead of um, doing more explanation of what it is. Vs. Now, where we also you, you can consider part of it as like coverage. Yeah. Uh, the the thing that that crosses my mind is in the very beginning i think the the argumentative side for the sake of better dialogue i don't think it was established well i also just don't think well so 30 weeks ago that's what 7 months yeah right. 7 and a half months i guess we've gotten to know each other over the past 7 months so the conversation is better i wonder how things would have progressed on a i guess relationship level if we didn't have this show that is an interesting question we'll never know mm, i mean i would suspect that it'd probably be not that the relationship's superficial but it just would probably not be it would be a little bit more drilled down well yeah because you don't you have to be intentional even with your friends if you want to talk about deep stuff yeah and we're required by the structure yeah. of this weekly podcast oh. to sit down and talk to each other for an hour. Here's a good question. How have you changed because of this podcast? I've told you this before off yeah. air, but my ability to articulate what I'm thinking has improved even when I'm not in front of a mic and not consciously, but just subconsciously I've gotten yeah, better. You kind of need to think a little bit quicker on your feet. I th- said this before, but I'm better at rescuing myself from bad sentences. So yeah. I don't start and then stop and restart, but I will save myself halfway yeah. through it. Do you think your articulation is better? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think my, I think my thoughts, like the thinking has always been there. All right. Okay. I just want to be clear. I didn't suddenly get smarter in seven months from doing this show, <laughs> but my ability to explain what I'm thinking about is probably better. I think I slowed down a lot. So for example, when I was working through certain ideas or thoughts for this so you see I'm slowing down because I'm picking my words, but for the sake of just everyday life, like there are certain things that you'll, you'll encounter and I would probably just practice a bit more of a similar approach where I just slow down and think about it and be a little bit more deliberate. Whereas maybe in the past I would just sort of ramble through it. So I think overall, I mean, this is, this is our sort of, what's the right word to use? This is hopefully inspiring other people or just letting them know that it's not that hard to do as long as you try and do it. Yeah. If you're willing to like dedicate time and and be consistent about it, there's no reason why you won't see a measurable increase in quality. And I mean, at the end of the day, like I didn't intend to do this for the sake of like developing my personal skills or like 
skills outside of this exact format. But I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap into other things. Also, if you want to find out if you can have a better relationship with someone, you should start a podcast with them. It'll be, it's revealing. I have a Christmas gift for you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Should I open this on air? Yes. That's, so, that's why I'm giving it to you right now and not right. off the mic. You guys can't see this, but it's wrapped in white paper with a snowflake on it. And it's got the tape that's sealing it is a line of dots. It's recycled paper. Nice. I don't buy wrapping paper. It feels like a book. It, uh, it, I think it looks like a book too. Like a book? <laughs> All right, you know what? It's okay. You can rip it. All right. So the book is Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption by Brian Stevenson. Interesting. I think that I might have mentioned it on this show before, but I'm not certain. So ex- let me know why you got me this book. Okay, so I didn't mean for this to turn into a story, but I went to the bookstore and there were actually two other books that I tried to find you that they didn't have, but I'm going to shout them out on the podcast anyway. One is Reset by Ellen Powell and the other is Negroland by Margot Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And I tried to get you those books because I was actually consciously trying to get you a nonfiction book by a female author and also a female of color author to sort of like expand your reading set, but they didn't have either book. So I settled for this one, which that's a testament to Hong Kong bookstores. Yeah. Turned into an interesting revealing story. Um, but I like just mercy a lot because it's about, uh, incarceration in the States and specifically about how it affects African-American males. And it's like, it's, really easy read because it's fascinating yeah so i think you'll like it yeah thank you and i also just kind of wanted to get you a gift so i could surprise you on air thank you <laughs> i am uh i have a little bit of egg on my face i am without any gifts no it's fine although i like to think that us doing this is my gift to you <laughs> right Yes, this podcast has actually, I don't know if you've been seeing on Twitter, but a lot of people have been tweeting accomplishments of 2017. No. You have not seen this. I I am embarrassed to admit that the Twitter that I am on right now is just not my usual timeline. Okay, that's fine. Anyway, so my Twitter has been people, journalists tweeting, you know, the best articles they were, or the articles they're the most proud of in 2017 or just projects that you achieved and it's pretty cool because some things maybe slipped you by like as a regular reader um and for me I was thinking I didn't tweet this but one of my accomplishments I would definitely rank this year like in the top three is doing this podcast damn yeah trying to hold back the tears Therese or if you can <laughs> let it out just let it out well it's the end of the year the last episode of 2017 so I feel like we can get sentimental okay fair next enough next year will be all business again Sounds good. No more sentiments until the end of 2018. All right. Oh, on this one last note, this might be the last time that we're in the same room for what, a month? Yeah. Yeah. Sharice is going off to Kyoto to work for a month. Yeah. So the dynamic may be slightly different because we won't be in front of each other. Just a heads up. Yeah, it'll be fine. Should we get going for the day? Yeah, let's do this. You start it off. All right. This is going to require a lot of energy, I think. I think it the topic itself will bring the energy. Yeah. 
you you don't even have to summon so, it because yeah. it will just come naturally. Yeah. And the subject that I am talking about to preface this, this week, I accidentally forgot to put this in the in the link list of yes. Tuesday's newsletter. I totally was going to, and I messaged Sharice about it, but I forgot. Yes. Yeah. So. This is coming to you blind in a way because you won't have had a chance to read it. But it's been quite widely spread, I would say. And the subject is so, so much climax, so much buildup now. The New York Times does an expose on sexual harassment and the toxic boys club culture of vice media. So to give a little bit of background information, Vice Media is a North American digital media and broadcasting company originally from Montreal, is currently valued at $5.7 billion. Vice Media includes a whole bunch of brands beyond Vice, including Viceland, Noisy, Motherboard, Munchies, ID, etc., and even smaller ones. It's currently headquartered in Brooklyn. It was co-founded by Sarush Alvi, Shane Smith, and Gavin McInnes. Currently, Smith and McInnes are still the leads, and it was founded in 1994. Okay, so that's all the background you need about Vice. Would you, how would you describe what you read and watch? On Vice? I would say Vice is a youthful take on journalism, and I think that do you do you say youthful in terms of the way it's written or subject wise? I would say both. Okay. I think that it can be more serious, like topics but at the same time i think their approach is just more relevant mm-hmm. like i think every every generation has a different way of being communicated to and they just so happen to understand how to communicate to a quote-unquote more youthful generation um on an earlier episode of this show we talked about the vice documentary where one of their white female reporters covered the nazi movement in charlottesville I yes think. yes and, and we were saying that that was a really good example of good on the spot journalism, like quick thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so the expose, what it is, is the Times covers four different settlements that involved sexual harassment and defamation. And they give a lot of details about it. And the Times backs this up. They said they interviewed more than a hundred current and former vice employees. And actually it's really interesting because there is a substantial part of this expose that says like, after Vice figured out we were investigating them, then they did X, Y, Z, or then so-and-so came forward. So it was like the Times, I don't know how it starts. The Times maybe gets one lead and they start looking into it. And then, you know, rats come out of the cupboard. They start to find more dirt. And then yeah. Vice is like trying I, to clean up its act as, yeah. time, I mean, the, as New York, the Times is the working. The New York Times is a true empower, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. I, I'd say the New York Times is a true enabler because that is a legitimate publication that's coming forward in support. Yeah. So what it is, I'm not going to get into the details of the settlements because so if you go and read this, it's quite long and they go into, you know, dates and exact numbers and names, et cetera. But besides that, they talk to just a lot of women and men as well who experienced or witnessed a large range of sexual misconduct yes. advice. So it goes from, you know, things that are really clearly in, inexcusable, like groping women or forcing them to, or asking them to have sex with you, things like that. And then things that are less specific, less specific to one incident, which are a culture where you 
as a female might suspect that your male supervisor is not promoting you because you turned down a kiss at a party, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. The two things that I, I wanted to like sort of bring to the table were, and this is not in support of any action so much as I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion, knowing how vice is sort of respected and people get behind it because there's this edgy version that is telling things um, that mainstream media may not cover. Would that sort of philosophy and, and sort of all that be possible if it wasn't always pushing the boundaries? And that is like the interesting thing is because like, I think the way they've gone about approaching their, their editorial storytelling in some ways is like, just do it, whether or not you agree with their, their editorial lens. And I think that it's spilled over into the culture, right? Yeah. So it's like, you could potentially wrangle that back in, but the yeah. vice as we know it today might not be the same vice. Yeah. I was thinking about that same subject because vice is known for and should credit a lot of its success for being provocative. It yeah. Is Pro- famous. Provocation is good. Yeah, it's famous from that's the early a, days for covering streetwear and drugs and things that traditional media wasn't talking about. Right. And I understand that. And I think, and, and that is appealing to me too, in terms of subject wise, in terms of content. And I want, I wrestle with that same question because I wouldn't wish for Vice's content to be different. I would hope that you can produce that kind of writing without a workplace that is misogynistic. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that the the misogynistic part is is probably not. I think that that doesn't need to to, to kind of tip into the editorial side. I think that the general looseness of it is probably the bigger picture sort of intersection, right? That the fact that you're going about things and not having hard strict rules, but that doesn't mean that doesn't condone misogynistic behavior. That's my perspective. On I understand. Yeah. I, and I, I, I don't think it's um, easy to talk about as well because I see the value in not necessarily always playing by a journalistic playbook, but you still have to be really clear that there are still rules to some things. Mm-hmm. And even though vice covers a lot of parties that doesn't mean there should be co-workers at parties then breaking rules of sexual harassment and i know it's like i'm not making an excuse like i see how that conflation happened yeah yeah so this is a kind of a an obvious not so obvious answer the obvious answers are there but i'm just curious from your perspective how would you express the benefit of having a workplace where everyone's on equal footing and you rid yourself of any sort of misogyny? Actually, first, before I answer that question, in your personal experience, can you see how this culture happened? Like you are able to have a personal understanding of the vice culture from your own experiences? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I I think definitely that, you know, where I used to work, I don't, I wouldn't say that any of this stuff happened that I know of, right? But it's like, I mean, people hook up at work, et cetera, et cetera. But I would also say that, and this also kind of tips into another question I was going to ask later, but since we're on that topic, it's like, I can see how when you have 
you know, a bunch of people that are young, spending a lot of time together, getting drunk, hanging out outside of work, things are going to happen. But sometimes I wonder if like, and, and it's interesting because I think of myself as very self-aware and yet I still wonder if me and somehow other young women in media are just all making things up and the men don't understand it. As in like, I don't know if you see the reality of the problem because you do, you, you, you cannot possibly have the same experience that I have. Agreed. Because I'm also not omnipresent. There are things that are going to happen when I'm not around. Okay. So to go back to your question about what a more egalitarian culture looks like, what, what the benefits of that is. One key thing that I think women in media struggle with, especially ed, quote unquote edgier publications, provocative publications, is that there is an expectation if you are female that you have to be able to play with the boys. You have to be able to get on with that kind of culture. Like if there's a sexy joke or like a dick joke, like you have to be able to laugh at that. And I'm not saying that it's not funny a hundred percent of the time, but it's unfair that there's an expectation on the females in the room to play along Mm -hmm. or to bend their personality in some way Mm -hmm. in order to fit in. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a concern as well. Like you will wonder if you didn't get a promotion or a raise because the, because you are female, Mm -hmm. because your male supervisor, I don't know, is, is afraid is afraid that he'll come on to you even, or, um, that he flirted with you once and you rejected him. So he feels uncomfortable about it. And Mm -hmm. you'll wonder, did I not get this story because of that? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's unclear. You can't know for certain, but there is that feeling. What is really damaging is not being able to be certain. I mean, obviously there's a real damaging stuff like abuse and harassment results in suits and um, trauma, but Overall, the culture is damaging because you will always wonder, did I earn this through merit or did I not, did I have to work harder Yeah, because I had to battle a sexist X, Y, Z. Yeah. So even if there aren't any clear indications on the surface of why your success has sort of come about, it still lingers in the back of your mind, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I, I mean, obviously, I, I could I could never experience that. So yeah. this is the first time I'm I'm sort of hearing it. So yeah. even if there is no evidence of tampering, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. Um, but like, yeah, I think even when there isn't like a clear cut case, like groping, right? Like no physical advance of some kind. Mm-hmm. Places like Vice are the woman describe it as. Um, there was a good quote I wanted to bring up. Oh, woman advice described the culture there as male entitlement and ingrained misogyny. And I think it's not just vice. And I, I would even hazard to say like it's the majority of publications because there is still an imbalance in terms of men and female, men and women in leadership positions. And when that's the case, then... So long as the power is not evenly split, then mm-hmm. it, 
the employees will not feel a balance. Yeah. Yeah. So do you agree? No, I, I totally agree. Just like I, I think they're, they're, I don't believe that things should be split for the sake of being split so much as like the merit side. Right. So, but I also think that at the, at the same time, the, the analysis and like the, the insight into sort of the, the backing behind choosing people for certain roles is tainted to begin with. Yeah. So I'm not about, Hey, you know what? Let's just split it right down the middle and you know, it'll sort itself out. It's more like, Hey, let's actually look at the opportunities from a balanced lens. Cause I would say that's the issue right now. It's not balanced. Yeah. It skews heavily towards male. Yeah. Yeah. That, I would that's say that. my issue. I would say both in the workplace and also I think coverage itself, the, the times expose actually doesn't mention this really, but if I was to go back through vice features, I'm ready to bet money that the majority of them are male. Like I, I just have confidence in that being the case. And then I also wonder if the kinds of women that are featured are as varied as the kinds of men. Mm-hmm. Like I feel a lot of entertainment publications or edgy publications like vice, they cover a lot of female entertainers, but maybe not a broader scope than that. Mm-hmm. But for men, they might cover, you know, the whole range mm-hmm. CEOs, scientists, engineers, entertainers, etc. And that's also a problem Yeah, when that's your coverage, it affects the kind of employees you attract. And then also what your employees feel comfortable in saying and doing. Mm-hmm. So this was one of the questions that I mentioned off air that I, I was curious to ask you is there are certain things that happen. Like I don't think vice ever anticipated becoming a multi-billion dollar company. No. Uh, I think a lot of things they did in the early days were a byproduct of just the times you know what I mean? Like if you're a scrappy startup, let's, I'm not even talking about anything on the sexual harassment side, but let's say you did something a little bit unsavory because you needed to pay rent. Okay. Let's say that, you know, let's say that there was something that happened 12 years ago at a, a Christmas party. Is someone able to atone for what they did that long ago? Like how, how would you approach that? Where like, Hey, you know what? Let's say I did something fucked up like, you know, 10 years ago and it still weighs on me. Is there any way I can make it better or I can clear the air or is it something that's always going to be on my record? And this kind of ties back to remember the um, the podcast we did a few ep- episodes ago about uh, was a Skepta. Yeah. yeah. Where he yeah. was getting he was getting hammered for things he said when he was a lot younger. Yeah. Whether it's homophobic, whatever. Like that's what I'm curious to know is like uh, some of these instances come up, you know, half a decade, a decade yeah, later. Yeah. And I would like to think that who you are and when you're 23 versus 33 mm-hmm. versus 43 are different. And like what happens if nothing happened, you know, from 24 onwards because you smartened up? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Actually, I didn't say this in my earlier explanation, but Smith and Alvi, uh, co-owners still leading Vice Media, did say in a statement to the Times, this is a quote, from the top down, We have failed as a company to create a safe and inclusive workplace where everyone, especially women, can feel respected and thrive. So they make an apology. They actually, the expose covers it. They, um, they went through firings. They eventually did fire the people responsible in Mm -hmm. the settlements. They hired a, um, new HR. They hired outside investigation. There's a diversity board now. So they are, 
making, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't work at Vice, so yeah. I don't know if this is making a real difference, but they're at least making actions that look like at least they it's are better trying than when it was to make difference. Free. Yeah. And it's a, it's a start. And did you read the comments on the expose? No. You didn't look no, at? No, no. Okay. So I actually did look at the comments. Well, I looked at the New York Times picks yeah. comments. I did not look at all of them. But there was one that has stuck with me because, so it's this man named Walter Rett. And he comments on the language of denial used to cover incidents and events. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets to what you're talking about. Not, I mean... He says denial, but it goes, I think what he's addressing is like when people apologize, it's often in these incidents, it's like, I was younger, I didn't know better, I'm a new person now. And I think you are allowed to change, but apologies need to be more specific as well. Mm -hmm. Like they need to address, especially in these instances, unlike Skepta, which was like a vague comment in general, denigrating a general gay community, if you are specifically hurting individuals, I think you need to come out and say, what I did this time with this woman was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I need to, like... But doesn't that bring the attention to someone who may not want it either? I mean, if the attention's already there, you can't get away from it. Got it. I'm not saying, like... I don't know. It would be nice if people just came forward and confessed all the things they did. But if, if people know about the existence of X, Y, Z, then I think you should just address the fact that Mm -hmm. those things were wrong. Um, and I think ultimately it doesn't matter what in, in this case, because it's not individuals necessarily, that is the problem. It's a workplace. It it comes down to not what they say, but what actions they actually take. Do you think that, CEOs of large companies actually need to be more proactive in seeking out any sort of friction. Yeah. So like you should, you think they should develop task force where like, Hey, I need to stamp out sexual harassment. So someone needs to be continually on watch. If you are big enough to have those resources and I say yes. Mm -hmm. Cause you think it's going to happen regardless. They're valued at 5.7 billion. I think they can spare. Well, it's less about that. It's more about do you think that this problem will always be yes. around regardless? You don't think it's going to change? No. Okay. I, th- I don't I don't really have an opinion on it because I wonder how much of it is is ingrained in the culture of the of the business, but I think that we've also seen that I think I'm, it's I'm the same of- as like how there are laws against wage theft mm-hmm. because it's just a thing mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. There should be equal safety measures against sexual harassment because mm-hmm. no matter I, I think it's naive to think that we are a more modern society so sexual harassment isn't going to happen I think it's a human thing when there is power involved mm-hmm. and I and I honestly I think it could happen um it could be men or women who are abusing their power in some way it should be no different from like how there needs to be a wage parity, right? Yeah. Like, well, I guess I'm just trying to see if there's a sliver of good in humanity and that if the culture is strong enough, then it won't happen. No. You don't have that sort of belief. Do you think that it's a problem that you need to be watchful of when you're just starting out? 
I think you need to be watchful regardless, but I also think that it requires a certain level of experience, life experience, you know, running a team management to be able to identify this. I wonder if you think about it because we're a team. I, I think we're, about we're it. We're a much smaller team. But. I think about it. I, I think about I the one thing I cannot control is maybe the leisure elements of, of making. So like when everyone's just like hanging out and yeah, not you really. You had a question you wanted to ask about that, right? Mm, not really. It was mm. the one that pertained to like going back mm. and figuring. Yeah. Like I, I think the moments that, that make me question it the most are when people are just like out and about outside of a work setting. And like, I can't really control what's being said. And most of the time it's more on the basis of being a joke. So it's it's hard for me to differentiate what is like it's kind of like a a comedian right when he tells a, an offensive joke but it's clearly contextualizes this is comedy mm-hmm. right so those are the things that for me like you know if it's a work function and it's a work party or whatever yeah of course you need to step in but if it's something that happens where hey you know what let's all get dinner and then someone says something what 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 is what is my role in that yeah, that's a good question. I was going to ask you that. How responsible do you feel in that situation? Even though you are at what is ostensibly not a work function, but there are people who you employ present, does that affect how you behave? I think it should. Behave? Yeah. I think it should. I think it should too. <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to say. But I, I, I wonder, am I exerting too much control and power over over someone when in reality it's like, all of a sudden I'm controlling your personal life in a way. It's not that easy, right? You're thinking about it. Cause that's the thing is like, Hey, if you, even if you said something offensive and I was like, and I was, yo, I was like, Hey, Sharice, that's not cool. You can't say that. Right. But then, but I think you should, no, you should say it. But then at the same time, it's like, does that mean I fire you because of it? Like, you know what I mean? You're, you're, I guess that's the thing is like, I guess it, it has proven that people lose their jobs over things they, they do in the public sphere outside of the workplace because it reflects poorly. But I think, it, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you fire me over a specific incident out of the office where I do something um, inadvisable, but it should inform you about the kind of person I am. Yes. I don't think... And this is something that I think the Vice Exposé shows you as well, that you cannot imagine that people are different at a party and different in the workplace. It's mm-hmm. the same person. There's, generally speaking. But, uh, uh, yes, yeah. generally speaking. And yes, you cannot fire someone for something you see them do like on IG stories. But I think it does inform you about the kind of person that you have hired. Yeah. But what happens if they're super bundled up at work and then on Saturday nights, they're getting in bar fights. The thing that should tell you something about who they are. I'm like policing them. Outside I know. I'm work. not saying you police them, but I think it should inform what you know about this person. I don't think like, I, again, I, I'm not suggesting that you take action, but I think you include it in what you know about a person. It's the same thing as like we, employers now will look at people's social media. Mm -hmm. And I think I said this before, like you should just, you should be the person that you are proud of, like on social media Mm -hmm. and not. So on the flip side, like, let's say 
you are concerned about policing someone's personal life outside of the office. But at the same time, I think seeing any employer stand up for those beliefs outside of the office will com- carries over mm-hmm. into a working environment. Yeah. Even, and this is hard because it gives you so much responsibility, but like, let's say a person who doesn't work for Megan does something inadvisable in front of you and you say nothing. And I see that I don't disconnect that from Eugene in the office. Mm-hmm. I remember the fact that Eugene let XYZ happen in front of him mm-hmm. and said nothing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not that straightforward. It, it's it, not. It, it, it translates Because into- I'm also judging you for not saying anything. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no, I, I think it, it's easy for us to stand back. But in the heat of the moment, I don't I don't know if you necessarily can 100% confirm that you'll make the right decision. Oh, man, no, I can't. I yeah. can't say that I all the time make the right decision and don't make mistakes. And I always call people out on their shit. But um, I think to bring it beyond just workplace, but in a generally talking about a culture that is misogynistic, shouldn't you be standing against that stuff anyway, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's in your workplace or not? Like you, you and me both, shouldn't mm-hmm. we yeah. be standing up against misogyny, sexual harassment, yeah. regardless of whether it's our coworker yeah. or employer? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to reopen this kind of words, but it really comes down to the context because yeah. like I said, like, you know, how many times you watched a comedian who, who is offensive, but you kind of knew it was for, his show. I mean, I'm pretty hardline and I, there are some jokes that I will not find funny that even from a comedian in a standup show, I just don't think that it's a joke worth telling. Got it. So that's, that's where I fall for you. I would advise you on what you should laugh at and not because I know you, you would or you wouldn't. I would. Mm, See, I I draw the line there. I don't, I don't, I don't think that if it's contextualized appropriately, then I, I think there is a bit of like a poetic license to just go about it. I think jokes are, this has gone so off of the vice expose, but I think jokes are harmful too. I find it hard to imagine a joke that's about sexual abuse that critiques culture in a useful way. Mm-hmm that is more useful in its critique than it is harmful in being a joke. Is that a good place to wrap it up? I don't know. I actually felt like I was too permissive. Really? I don't feel like I came down hard enough on this being. There is no way you can cut it where it looks good. For vice. For vice. For vice. To not to say that they are irredeemable, but I, I just don't want to come across as they are excusable in some way. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think I came across strongly enough that this totally exists in more media publications and newsrooms everywhere. Yeah. And I know this from my female writer friends uh-huh. who tell me this. Yeah. So I don't know. And I don't, I don't know what the purpose is in me emphasizing the fact that it is prevalent yeah. other than to 
I guess in solidarity of my female listeners who write in newsrooms where they've experienced mm-hmm. toxic cultures. Anything else you want to add? Actually, this was, you were the person who wanted to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, I was just interested to hear your perspective on it. And I was just curious to know what are the, what are the things in place? Like systemically, how to ensure this doesn't happen? Maybe not so much happen, but how does it not derail sort of the good things that can come about, you know, a newsroom or a media organization? I think what concerns me is the connection we make between provocative content and male culture and stereotypically male culture. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how to fix that. I think that if you look at the trajectory of Vice, like I'm sure there's a lot of things that Vice has done that's been controversial from the very early days. Sometimes it is difficult to fix that when that is in many ways a mark of your success. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like it's, it might be paradoxical because that's your success, but that could also be your downfall. Yeah. I guess you don't, you don't seem that satisfied. I don't, I feel dissatisfied with, the conversation, but I don't know exactly what it is. I feel dissatisfied about what do you want to do to be more inclusive at Macon to be aware of. I think that the thing that that comes across as being the most important is just having the ability to tell more diverse stories. Mm. And I think the newsroom currently, actually I would say it's not that skewed towards male. It's it's starting to balance out a bit more. What do you mean, like like just the the types of editors and like writers that we're bringing in to the mix? Like I don't, I would say it's it's definitely not fifty fifty, but it's I think it's starting to balance out a bit more. I think I mean more just like in general in terms of principles. But mm. you did mention coverage, which I, I mean, think is the, one thing. The principles are hard to explain because I I don't go about and, th- and think about you know oh you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I hit these these five things on my principal checklist it just it it's just there you know it's like it's a thing that is subconscious right it's like don't judge people based on it's kind of like provide opportunity based on merit and if that that generally trumps a lot of things right Mm -hmm. so that if that's already very very much a foundational element then i don't think you really need to specify My topic today is a bit of a retrospective. It's a video with John CJ by Fast Company, and it's actually from 2011. When I was watching it, I didn't know it was from you know almost seven years ago. And as I was and as I was listening to him talk, I was like, you know, this is all very relevant. This is so on point. And then yeah. it's only after the fact that I realized that it was you know almost 10 years ago. You know, and the thing that's most enlightening about what he said was just the need for people to go out and exit their comfort zones. Yeah. Right. And it, it kind of is so relevant now when we're stuck in these filter bubbles and I'm going to play a little bit of a snippet right now and you guys can get a, a better understanding. 
The greatest thing that we can do offer is to be great listeners and to have empathy for your culture to understand what is the truth. And so, you know, many times people will say, what, what did you do for your, your longtime clients? Basically, what we did was listen carefully, understood and be empathetic to the truth of who they are, to understand their soul, understood their soul, and then make that soul relevant to a greater number of people. One of the great challenges for all of us, not just creative people, is to put yourself into unusual situations, put yourself into unusual cultures where you don't belong, to put yourself amongst people who you don't normally hang out with or out of your comfort zone culturally. And I think that's very, very important. The concept and notion behind it is not complex. It's like, hey, you know, we fall into this, these repeatable patterns every day, especially when things become too convenient, right? And I think that he really sort of enlightened the need for you to just go and try out new things to put yourself in new environments and opportunities. And it's it's interesting because this was in many ways a, a precursor, like a foreshadowing to what is sort of rampant now where we're stuck in these these places where we're all thinking the same, where we're interacting with the same people. We have these communities online. Um, and I think that, 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 that to me was one of the things that reinforced the fact that I personally need to go and step out and like put myself into new situations, things that uh, I, maybe I don't even want to do, right? Like maybe I should just go do it because I have this preconceived notion I won't like it. But then I should probably find value in the fact that it's a new experience because the new experience in many ways, there's there's no barometer measuring stick to success in a new experience, right? And I I, I think this is like maybe maybe for 2017, it's a bit of a, a retrospective theme. Step back, just do things that either you're not good at or you've never experienced. And I, I feel like I've been burnt before where I've done so much reading, so much research into something and felt as though I knew a lot about it, but never actually put my foot onto the pavement and experienced it firsthand. Sharice is typing away. You just reminded me of, oh man, you just reminded me of this great metaphor I once read on this topic of expertise Mm -hmm. and knowledge. And I've completely forgotten who the author is. So it's not very helpful. Can you paraphrase it? Yes. And paraphrase it. She said it was like experts live on different islands. So in this case, the metaphor is islands instead of bubbles or silos, right? But like experts live on different islands. And when you are someone who wants to know a little bit about a lot of things, you are a swimmer between these islands and Mm -hmm. you're never going to be native, but you have to be content with, with the amount of knowledge you have and the inhabitants of those islands, they're going to know that you're not native Mm -hmm. and you can't hope, like you're saying, you can't hope to read so much about something or hang out so much with a group that you know you blend into seamlessly into that group mm-hmm. but you can be content visiting yeah when you look at your overall skill set you know what you're weak at right yeah how active are you at trying to improve your weaknesses versus doubling down on your strengths better now 2017 I actually did stretch myself more in terms of skills to try more things and to not just take on the jobs that I know I'm good at. Um, I think the scary thing for me is 
The scary thing for me is that I get, I feel really good at doing things well. I think this is natural, right? Like I feel good in succeeding at things. And when you try something new, you're not guaranteed success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I've, I've tried not to lose sight of as I get older, I guess, is just always have that grit and determination. Like if you can't figure something out, like I think that's that's the beginning and the end. If something that you used to you used to have, you know, maybe when you're younger, you had more energy and you're willing to like just grind it out and figure out a solution. Like I never want to lose sight of that. So he talks about what we've been talking about in terms of knowledge and expertise and, and empathy how- And like, you know- Yeah, that's the part that gets me more that makes me feel like I'm not good at doing this is I'm not good at putting myself amongst people who I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I spend enough time trying to understand those people. Do you worry that you might find a sliver of something and you'll, you'll soften up to their stance that you feel so adamant against? Because I used to, I think I used to feel that way. I would like to say that I am not afraid to change my opinion on something. Yeah. That I am not so stubborn that I can't change my mind. But I think the reason why I don't go hang out with people that I think I disagree with is I just find it unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And I would have to overcome that my expectation that this is going to be unpleasant in the hopes that I might learn something more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the best examples are uh, looking back at everything that's transpired in the last year or so. You look at a lot of negative situations and a lot of movements that have kind of been born out of various circumstances and understanding why they think that way. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's white supremacy or whatever and like nationalism, like why does that exist? And doesn't mean that you have to accept it. It's just like you understand why and maybe that is the root of the issue that you should maybe gravitate more more towards. But I think what I do, my tactic towards those these subjects that I, I think I disagree with the other side is that I read books and material on those subjects, but they tend to be written by people I agree with. Does that exactly. make sense? No. The, well, that's the, the no, like as in, that's what I do. Yeah. E- even when I'm trying to learn about this subject, I'm reading material that was written by some someone who I am most likely to agree with yeah. rather than actually going to the source. And you know how I tried to combat that? And I don't know if it worked or not, was just following a plethora of people on Twitter that represented the the full range of of opinion. I'm sure most readers are probably more on the on the on the liberal side, but I just am never that confident with right wing news. Yeah. Because there might be an element of um, deception there. Yep. So as much as I follow it, like I could read something that's very compelling, but if the facts at the very core are wrong or they're manipulated, like that's kind of, you know, I throw a little shade on that, Yeah. but I'm open to it. I don't, I don't really have much to add to that. I think the video in itself is so thoughtful and well done in terms of what, what's communicated that I just highly suggest you guys go and watch it. It's worth your three minutes. And it's just kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but, prophetic in the sense that like everything he said is like so relevant now yeah and this was literally almost a decade ago i'm sure that in many ways i mean 2011 i don't think the algorithm element was so strong i think about i'm like there are certain value systems that regardless of where we are in the 
in the world and what time and place are still relevant and valid. And I think that's what's kind of interesting. Yes, society is worse today in terms of filter bubbles, but I also think that it's probably just a very human thing in of terms looking of comfort. For community. Yeah. yeah. I would argue that comfort isn't the thing you should always seek. Oh, yeah. No, you I agree. I, mean? I just mean that I think it's a human thing yeah. that we wind up doing it. Yeah. Cool. Well, that caps off episode 30. Conveniently Maybe. also the last of 2017. Congratulations. Congratulations to us. If you would like to hear more about Macon and our membership opportunities, which include exclusive stories, a members-only Slack community, you can check us out at Macon.com. There you can also listen and read to more of our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you're hearing this, this is obviously on the Making It Up feed. So if you're going to hopefully pass along to friends and family, please let them know to subscribe to both feeds. And if you like this podcast, do us a huge favor and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, we haven't said this in a while, but Eugene and I are open to being questioned and challenged. So you can hit us up at Sharice at Macon.com and Eugene at Macon.com. One thing too, I, I don't know if that many people are familiar, but we have an illustration that we contribute to every episode. And I think it's only available in one format. And that's if it's on like the Libsyn, which is the hosting for our podcast. Oh, really? I don't think anyone else can see it anywhere else. No, we gotta fix that. Yeah, maybe when we share this on wherever, we should just put it up. Okay. Well, I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. Good ending.